Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. On today's episode of our daily NYFF 60 edition, director Elvis Mitchell and executive producer Steven Soderbergh discuss Is That Black Enough for You? A spotlight selection of this year's festival with NYFF executive director Eugene Hernandez. American film critic Elvis Mitchell's kaleidoscopic documentary creates a definitive narrative of the black revolution in 1970s cinema, from genre films to social realism, from the making of new superstars to the craft of rising auteurs. With Is That Black Enough For You, the title referencing a recurring line from Ozzie Davis's 1970 benchmark, Cotton Comes to Harlem, Mitchell takes a personal and panoramic approach, expressing his own experiences as a viewer while detailing the cinematic and political histories that led to this extraordinary flowering of a newly ascendant black heroism. The Learning Tree, Watermelon Man, Shaft, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Cool Breeze, Sounder, Superfly, Coffee, The Spook Who Sat By The Door, Claudine, Uptown Saturday Night, Cornbread, Earl and Me, Killer of Sheep, and dozens more are analyzed with Mitchell's customary verve and perspicacity. This is a work of painstaking scholarship that's also thoroughly entertaining, an essential archival document and testament to a period of American film history unlikely to be repeated. Featuring interviews with Margaret Avery, Harry Belafonte, Charles Burnett, Lawrence Fishburne, Whoopi Goldberg, Samuel L. Jackson, Suzanne DePast, Glenn Turman, Billy D. Williams, Zendaya, and more, Is That Black Enough For You is a Netflix release. To learn more and get tickets for this year's NYFF taking place through October 16th in all five boroughs of NYC, visit filmlink.org. Enjoy this conversation with Elvis Mitchell and Steven Soderbergh. Please join me in welcoming director Elvis Mitchell and producer Steven Soderbergh. All right, that's enough. That's enough. This is crazy that I got to do this. And I got to be here. I can't thank you enough for this, Eugene. And again, you, Stephen, and God, Chloe, and Lisa, thank you guys so much. And um, Terry and Michael, and God, thank God for Roscoe and Louise. Weren't they great in the movie? I mean, wasn't... Oh, okay, no questions. Drive safe for me, right? Good night. <laughs> Not going to get off that easy, Elvis. Congratulations again. Thank you. Stephen, thank you for being here. Elvis, you know, a, a sort of natural question, if there were anybody else in this chair, I would probably start by saying, tell me about the origin of the project but and the origin of the film. But in this case, as I was re-watching a bit of it tonight, and, and I've been thinking about it a lot and preparing, thinking about this conversation, um, the answer is pretty obvious to me, but tell me what you think. The origin of the project is your life in cinema, to me. Um, no, that, that's absolutely it. I mean, it's this thing, talking about this yesterday in the panel. As a critic, you know, a critical thinker about movies, you ask yourself, what's not there? What's not being said? And so much of that being a person of color is imputing things and looking for inference and making that joke that, you know, if you're girl watching horror movies as a black person, you go, well, all the black people left already. We were too smart to stick around. Um, and wondering why if everybody goes to see movies. And to me, one of the most stunning clips in the film is hearing Dr. King talk about not being able to see movies when he grew I mean, you think about that. And that's about how pervasive the effect of movies is. And uh, movies are, forgive me, and 
to have to create a culture. I mean, so much there's, there's that joke about black culture. Use every part of the pig but the oink. So when heroism is thrown away by the mainstream, we sort of take it and refashion it for ourselves. And it was interesting watching the movie again, Stephen. It, it happened by kind of inadvertence that Ossie Davis ends up being the hero of the film. And it wasn't a plan, but it's just as things fell away and pieces fell out, you sort of see this guy who never gave up. Um, and these are, so much of this is just stuff I want to say. Um, again, a lot of black culture is about responding to things. And um, when that book Easy Riders Raging Bulls came out, I just thought, well, I, this should be really interesting because it's about that period. And I can't wait to see how they use black people in the movie. And a friend said, there is no mention of black people in the movie, in that book whatsoever. And I just said, that is not possible. Because at one point, John Kelly, who ran Warner Brothers in the 70s, he said to me, the dirty little secret of American films is that black films subsidized American movies of the 1970s. And that, and the fact that when you see these compendiums of the greatest clips of all time, that you never see that extraordinary clip of Billy D. Williams, if that's not a piece of movie star entrance, I don't know what it is. I mean, before he even like leans to their frame, you see the gleam on his fingertips. I mean, he's... Treat it like it's like the entrance of the, of the Millennium Falcon. He's it's extraordinary to see this. Even again, he's tickled by it, and just that so much of this, these moments that are entrances, these moments that are, as you would say, movie moments, Stephen, that have never been enshrined when people write about movies and talk about what the great scenes and the great movies. And one of the things that was sort of key to me to just include these moments, or this movie to feel like every five minutes you kind of go, wait, what? What? Huh? What? I mean, that, that thing, too, about the music, that black soundtracks affected the movies until now because they made the sale and commerce of soundtracks an immutable fact in, in movie marketing. That just sort of came because they couldn't, black filmmakers knew not to wait around. And also because Curtis Mayfield didn't know you couldn't release a soundtrack before the movie came out. And it was his label, so he just did that. Yeah, and I think picking up on that, I mean, I think about, studying film i went to ucla in the mid 80s early 90s and i think about like learning about so much that's in your movie but only in threads so a thread here a particular film or performance a thread over here but no one fully weaving it together into something that could be looked at as a whole piece or a whole story or a whole uh, movement uh, that's what you're doing here that that it, has, it isn't explored in the way that you're talking about it, the idea of putting it all together. And again, it's it's your lived experience, so you've been putting it all together. Tell me about how you and Stephen, tell me about early conversations the two of you had or early conversations that led to taking this down the road of becoming a, a documentary, Either for either one of you. Oh, God. I want to say as little as possible and let Elvis talk, but... Um, it really grew out of a series of conversations that we were having. Um, and the subject felt um, unexplored in a, in a sort of serious um, way in, in documentary, documentary terms. So finally, I said, let's go try and get this mm -hmm. made. Mm -hmm. That's a story in itself. Um, but Netflix, I have to say, was so supportive 
it's a lot. This thing, it's a lot, you know. Um, and mm -hmm. sculpting it was tricky. And Elvis was very calm and it evolved rapidly and often. And that's a testament to him. So I'm thrilled with it. I think it's great. <laughs> I can say that because it's his. <laughs> I mean, it's there's just so much to, to try to say about it. Um, there's so many things I thought. I mean, there's that thing by Alvarez, you know, now the thing that, that the short 1965 about the riots and that looking at the riots in the way that weren't being viewed in the mainstream and then seeing. Night of the Living Dead, and just saying, oh my God, it's the riots, it's Medgar Evers, it's Malcolm, it's all these things. And this kind of import that was never given, but also, the point of trying to do this as a book, and I should say, I was turned down by every publisher in America, probably twice by some. Uh, and then Toni Morrison offered to write the, the introduction, and we were just at dinner, and she was just, when I told her I wanted to do this, she goes, well, I'll write the introduction. I just went, who are you talking to? And she goes, no, I'll do it, and she just went on and I just start grabbing napkins right down the thing she was saying when she's talking about Pam Greer and what that music did and, and, and how funny it was to watch Earth, Wind & Fire go from Sweet Sweet Back to That's the Way of the World. And then we got to the whole conversation about Melvin being this guy who said, if you treat it like it's a black movie, nobody will write about it. So you had to treat it like it's a phenomenon. And so he, the selling of the movie, including, I think the greatest thing of all time, that he repurposed the X rating. But again, this is all these things that black movies do. And then following his example, and 20 years later comes Spike Lee. And then 35 years ago, Robert Townsend with Hollywood Shuffle. And them understanding you have to turn the story of the making of the film into the story because if it's a black film, nobody cares. Or it's written about in, in the most reductive terms. What I really wanted to do with this is to show how many different kinds of black movies there were. That there's Killer of Sheep, I mean, God, maybe one of the most beautiful movies ever made that came out of this period. But also, and, and I'm thankful Louise is here, uh, Symbiote, I mean, you see that movie, it was one of those things that before the internet, it was a rumor. You've heard, have you seen Take One? I've heard about Take One. Have you seen it? And then I ended up being on a plane with Steve Buscemi, and he it just came up out of nowhere. He goes, yeah, I know. I know, Bill. Why don't we bring him over to your house? He's got the movie on cassettes. So he's got it on two cassettes. I made barbecue, and we watched the movie. And you just, your jaw drops watching it because it's so inventive in real time. It's playing with a medium that shows it's in, you're in the hands of a master. Somebody who understands both sides of the camera. Somebody who understands storytelling and our reaction to storytelling. And... You can't tell me one way or another that Sasha Baron Cohen didn't, didn't somehow just absorb that into his bloodstream. I was just talking to David last week, um, Fincher, and I asked him if he had ever seen this chase scene, the Superfly, because I tell you, seeing this as a kid, it's the first movie that awakened me to filmmaking technique because it's all a single take. He's wearing that suede suit that he never wears again, so he obviously trashed it during that chase sequence. And I asked Jim C. really, oh, yeah, we borrowed that suit. We didn't know how to tell a guy we ruined his suit. But, I mean, you can even see in, on the big screen when he jumps up in the fire escape, his hands are shaking from all that adrenaline from the run and the jump over the fence in three-inch heels. Oh, my gosh. And, and there's just so much that movie is about invention. And 
and there's so many stories that we didn't get a chance to get into. And the, the heartbreak of this is it took so long to get it done that um, we lost people, but I couldn't have been better served than having the people we do in this film to have Stan Lathan talk about what I think is a great lost documentary, Save the Children, or um, that Curtis Mayfield. I mean, those five soundtracks over the course of a decade would be a, an achievement that the most people would die for. To have made two albums a year, and arguably, I think, the greatest soundtrack of the 1970s, which is Superfly, which is also, in addition to everything else, a soundtrack that's responding to the movie. It's the amount of invention that went on during this period that is always so often dismissed as black exploitation. And I didn't want to give people a license to say that here because it's not black exploitation. To see Zendaya talking about how she's absorbed Diana Ross into her, into her perspective, into her purview, into her aesthetic. Um, it's just, I'm sorry. Uh, I still have a lot to say about this, I guess. I'm glad you do. And I want to give uh, some folks in the audience a chance to ask you about it as well. So if you don't mind taking some questions, I think we have microphones. Uh, so if you do have a question, please raise your hand and we'll all the way down in the front right here. Yes. Elvis, I was, I was hoping you could elaborate a little more on why this era came to an end because the film suggests that it was all due to the box office failure of the whiz, but I'm sure there is more going on than just that one that's, that's basically it. And I'm glad you actually asked that question because I wanted to make it about this 10-year period because so often when it comes to black culture, somebody goes, a century of black films. And let's not do that. Let's not try to sum a century up into a single issue of Entertainment Weekly. So open the wise here from the magazine. Or, or some special or something. I mean, the fact is that this, this period was instrumental because it, it, between Night of the Living Dead, which again, each of these movies that are successes don't seem to translate into people going, let's institutionalize this. And for the failure of the whiz, because you got to think that people are looking for a way, and it's proven itself to be sinisterly true, to not deal with the, with black culture, because it scares them, because you know they didn't know any black people. And this was a studio executive who said to me in the early 90s, yeah, black people just don't want to see themselves in historical dramas. And I say, you base it knowing on how many black people? Uh, well, it's just the information we have. And came from where? Well, the information we have. And um, again, you think from 1978, they're like a handful. This is the failure of uh, Ragtime, which was attempted to do something like that studio-wise. But the return of James Cathy got all the attention. It's really not until 86 with Spike Lee, who does what Melvin Van Peebles did. And then Robert Townsend, who did what Spike and Melvin Van Peebles did. And so what happens, though, and I'm sort of terrified about this, is every decade, it's the renaissance of black film. Things that we're never going to go back. Better than ever. We're going to give all this talent a chance. And then there are a couple of box office failures. And it's like, oh. So I've always said this, that black success in pop culture is the equivalent of finding a $100 bill in the subway. It's a non-repeatable phenomenon. That's the way it's, it's viewed in a lot of executive suites. Unfortunately, Netflix wasn't the kind of place for that, but there are a lot of other places where it is. And that's why this decade and, and that period. Thank you. Uh, let's go right to the center of the room and then we'll come over here too. Uh, you mentioned that there were a lot of threads that you had to cut from um, the film. Uh, what's your favorite thread that you had to cut? 
Um, listen, I just, I so love that what's up here, and I'm so shocked that I got to make this movie. I, I, that you guys are still here <laughs> feels like the the strangest dream I've ever had. I expect to wake up on the freeway, wandering in my pajamas. How did this happen? No, I mean, the fun of it was trying to build this in a way that kept this thing in motion. Because, you know, it's like movie history is itself a series of digressions. You can't talk about this movie without talking about that movie. So even though, it's strictly speaking, it is chronological. And, and there's so many things that I love that are in the movie. It's like the story of Rupert Cross, who's this guy who, if you listen to Jack, I swear I, I believe this to be true. You listen to Jack Nicholson sort of snarl in that voice, that's not New Jersey. That's somebody who grew up in Jamaica who's trying to figure out how to sound like an American. And that kind of mirthless laugh that Cross does and, and faces. You see that stat, he's, I think, I would swear to you, my guess is, in those acting classes they took together that you can hear Nicholson doing Rupert Cross and Bob Town influenced by the way he deported himself. I mean, he's a hugely influential figure. And Diana Sands, who, you know, I mean... She starred in The Owl and the Pussycat on Broadway with uh, Alan Alda in the early 60s. And when they turned into a movie, she was forgotten. You just see that, that, that radiance that she's got on screen. And you hear that enormously evocative way that Roscoe speaks of her. You can sort of feel her as he's talking about her. I'm, I'm just happy with the stuff we have. And I got to make this. That's coming out on Netflix November 11th. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> One, one, one aspect of this, Elvis and Stephen, that I can't help but overlook is this idea that, well, like, okay, so let me, let me frame something. 68, take one, uh, take one in 1968, an outlier might have been considered one at the time. 78, killer sheep, Charles Burnett, an outlier. Spike Lee comes along within a decade. But, 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 but Ganjan Hess. Yeah. An outlier. I mean, there's one every year. What? We, yeah. And so what I'm, what I'm, the thread that I'm thinking about is I'm sitting here and, and as I was rewatching and really like puzzling over this is, I love that you leave the film at sort of the at the doorstep of what will become the independent cinema movement of this country. Um, Barry Jenkins, Moonlight, winning Best Picture, an outlier, and yet you can't watch this movie without seeing all these outliers as part of a much bigger story and and you know Stephen uh, uh, sex lies and videotape starts independent film but there's there's like these threads that just like that 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 we we have to reframe uh, this is what I'm thinking we have to reframe how we think about the history of the medium that we all celebrate oh yeah I think you have to question all of it um, and that's part of the what we talked about is how to be critical and celebratory at the same time and and that was a constant you know subject of discussion during the edit and like i said elvis was very fluid we could come up with an idea of how to change how he was talking about something he'd go in the next room, record it, come back. It's in the cut. We can look at it. It was very fluid. That, that this film exists as 
an object for all those who study film from today forward is is not only exciting but essential i think god thank you um because i guess i feel this way about it too that it's it's about film but it's also about the social and cultural impact that black life has had on this country um and and um my fear is because of this thing that happens so often with black culture is that there's a reductive eye train towards it i mean we want i hate to use this word but it, it becomes binary you know it's this or this and it's all these things it's so many things you know and and I think the resilience of what we think was being American independent film comes from that period. We can probably do one or two. Let's go all the way back here, and then we'll come up here. So, uh, the the archival material that you have in the film is incredible. And there was a I don't know if you're aware, but there was a an exhibit earlier this year at the Poster House Museum in New York that featured the the film posters from these movies in in a lot of the same movies that were featured here in the documentary. So I, my question is twofold. Uh, one, you know, how did you source some of the material that is was no longer, I guess, even available? Like the films had almost been cleansed because of their content. And then uh, in addition to the music, did you also look at the poster art and some of the other like really innovative marketing tactics that were used uh, in order to get these films exposure? Yeah, I thought the poster was a poster stuff was a really big part of it. I mean, it, there's nothing funnier to me than the legend of Black Charlie, that poster, which I just remember you would do, if you like see people walking through downtown Detroit, everybody stopped to look at that thing, like everybody, because it was this beautiful sort of culture clash and really sort of daring and confrontational. Um, and those posters were in some, time, in some ways kind of a shell game, telling you about a movie that wasn't there. But as often as not, those posters were celebratory too. I mean, that's what I'm hoping people get from this. I mean, I don't want this to be a lecture or me pitting you against the wall and saying, well, it's this and this and this. And, you know, a lot of this was me thinking about stuff I wanted to get into the movie. I mean, um, like when I saw Nipsey Hussle talking about the spooky satellite, I do, I think whenever I get mismade, that's going in there. So at a certain point, you just start writing stuff down in notebooks and, as Terry probably knows, I got like three satchels full of notebooks with stuff, ideas written down and stuff I wanted to use in this. But I have to say, for me, the greatest thing in this is to make a case to book in the movie really with Charles Burnett on one end and Harry Belafonte on the other. I mean, has anybody here ever seen Odds Against Tomorrow? You've got to see this movie because... It's extraordinary. Like everybody in the movie is in love with him. I mean, this is the elevator operator who was flirting with him in the elevator. And then, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing The Godfather going, wait, that's the guy who tried to pick up Harry Belafonte in Oz Against Tomorrow. That's Al Neary? That's crazy. And also, the movie's not judging him. It's just, it's just the fact that he's in love with Harry. But, you know, the point of the movie is that, you know, for all this, him being the sexual center of the movie, that he's basically been abandoned by society. There's a movie that's got Cicely Tyson with no dialogue. She's just like a face in the movie. And after later went on to be in MASH, Wayne Rogers makes his debut in this movie. I mean, the amount of talent, and he's doing an incredible job of playing the vibes. It's, it's the amount of talent expended on this movie. Should have, if, as, even as a financial failure, it should have been such a success that steam that it ensured him a film career. 
and that he had the presence of mind and determination to say, rather than do this thing, I want to do more than anything else. Instead of demeaning my people, I won't do it. That's extraordinary to me. But also, and Stephen, as we wrestle with this, trying to figure out a way to get Sidney Poitier into the movie. I just thought, how do you do this? Um, because he is somebody to be celebrated. But I want to try to come up with a way to, I think, try to say it in a way that nobody else had. And I just, again, I met him like a handful of times. He would say, young man, good to see you. I can't talk to you. And then he talked to me for three hours. It's like, if I can just record this on my phone. No, 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 no. I don't have anything else to say, but let me tell you this. And he was just so generous about being ungenerous that it was a beautiful thing. But as we were standing at the LA Film Festival, like my legs were getting tired from standing and he was still standing there talking. I just said, so it's crazy to me that you made five movies in a row that signaled your comeback, but also about guys who had to pretend to be somebody else. And then that turns into a long conversation. It's like, that became the thing, because again, there is not another person in film history who had that kind of career, who basically scrambled to be part of the mainstream, just be in movies in general, to become the biggest movie star in the world, to in the next year being irrelevant, to the next year being ridiculed, to four years later being a big movie star again. At the end of the decade, he's back where he started. I mean, it's unreal. I'm mindful of the time, and I think I'm getting signals. Are we one more? Can we do one more? Where are we? Where are we? Um, is there any director you watched, whose films you watched, who you really loved rediscovering their work and whose like work you saw in the film that made you I don't know, think about their work in a new light, uh, given like the amount of films that you spotlighted uh, in the movie? Um, I'm just I'm curious about that. I mean, there's so many. I guess one of the things that comes to mind is just... Again, it's a movie that's gotten this extraordinary short shrift. It's a learning tree, which in visual terms is just extraordinary. That shot of those boys on the bank after the, the kid's been killed, which is a, a stunning moment. And that it's rendered low as his photographs were for the WPA when he's shooting for the government. I mean, he knew what he was doing. But it, it, these, these, these scenarios, these, these scenes have this incredible graphic vitality. And you see that scene of those kids walking to those riders with the sun coming up. It's mind-blowing. I mean, and the, the movie's full of stuff like that. It's just, he was so inventive in visual terms. And then to go from that to using the, the stock he used to shoot Shaft at the beginning. I mean, it's, I mean, I think he's somebody who as a film technician has never got his due. But I have to say one of my favorite things to do in this is to connect Walk On By with Sergio Leone. <laughs> That was thrilling to me. I love doing that. <laughs> nice. Elvis, thank you for being here. Thank you for bringing the I film. Can't, I can't thank you enough. Steven, thank you for being here. Yeah.